So tonight, uh, if you have been with us, we've been going through this series called Vintage Wisdom. And if you receive our emails on Monday, you thought that what we're going to be discussing tonight uh, was the inner life. And maybe you've been reading those passages this past week, preparing your heart and mind for Sunday as we do together as a church. Uh, But we did a last minute change. And uh, so we are not going to be discussing the inner life. Instead, we're going to be discussing Uh, justice tonight. We're going to be discussing how to live in the city. And the reason for this was, is we were kind of thinking through and praying through together as a Crossbridge family, what does it look like uh, for us to shepherd? And what does it look like for us to communicate God's word? Uh, We really felt that in light of what has happened in Charlottesville and and kind of the cultural context of uh, where we're at, that we needed to move the discussion on justice, which was going to be the last topic in our series to tonight. And so I'm going to ask a few things of you before we get started. And the first thing is this. This topic in particular is very heavy, and it's going to take a lot of your focus, and it's going to take your energy, and it's going to take for you to lock in. And so I'm going to ask you from the very beginning of this sermon to lock into what God's word says on this topic because it really matters. And then to bring all of your thoughts and your feelings and the relationships and the conversations that you have with others into this conversation that we're gonna have together tonight. And so I want you to commit now and tell yourself, God, I'm gonna ask you to remove any distractions that I have. If I'm tired, if I'm thinking about what's going on this week, Lord, please give me strength and focus so I can hear what your word says on this such a vital discussion that we need to have together as a family. So are you in? All right, we're going to try that again. This is, are you in? Okay, good. That's what I like to hear. So we're going to start out uh, very clear, which is this. White supremacy is incompatible with the gospel. That's very clear. And I think we need to say that. I hate the fact that we have to say that, but we need to say that, right? White supremacy is incompatible with the gospel. I I heard a pastor say that heaven will be hell for a white supremacist because God's design and his wisdom is not about raising a race or a culture or a people above any other and so whether it's white supremacists or the KKK or neo-Nazis or any form of racism, bigotry, and hatred, this is not of God's design. This is not how he intended things to be. This is not what it means to come together in harmony and shalom. This is not the gospel. This is not Christian wisdom. It has no connection at all with what we see in Scripture. And sadly, what's happening is that we find ourselves in a place culturally where these terms are not being read about in history books where we ask ourselves a question like, how in the world did people actually think like this? How did they get confused and and tricked or what was in their heart to allow them to think that this is somehow an appropriate way of thinking? Instead of reading it in history books, we're reading it on the front page of newspapers and magazines. We go to our different news apps, and it is the first thing up there. We are watching protests take place all over the country. We are hearing conversations at work as people are facing different kind of feelings and environments where they're, they're facing this division and different forms of hatred. And then we see people wearing these symbols as if they're badges of honor, but we know, in fact, they're symbols of hate. 
This is the, the climate that we're in. 11, 10 through, verses 10 through 11, it says something, it, it's in your worship program, that I think is also, that is both the cry of our heart as a church and as a country, but it is also, sadly, the reality in some sense as well that we're facing. Look what it says. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices, right? This is the cry of our heart. We want the righteous to prosper and the city to rejoice. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Through the blessing of the upright, the city will be exalted. This is what we want. We want righteous and justice and love and peace and unity and all of these things to prosper and to go forth. And the ideas of bigotry and racism and hate and division, we want them to go aside. But the reality is the second half of that verse feels like what's taking place, right? Where it says, the mouth of the wicked, by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. That we desire to see truth and love and justice and harmony come together and prosper in our cities and in our country and in our culture and our world, but it seems like the mouth of the wicked is everywhere and it is bringing destruction and if you're like me, you read these articles and you see these things happening in different cities and you're listening to these conversations and experiences that people are having and, and the way that they feel and you're thinking, what do we do? I mean, how do we spark change? What is going to bring transformation? What is going to enable some of these people that have these hateful and disgusting ideologies to be awakened to truth. I mean, how are we going to see great change? How are we going to see transformation? How are we going to see minds that are running after lies be awakened to truth? And we think to ourselves, well, maybe education, right? Education reform, maybe there's, there's a, a breakdown in the education system. And so we need to figure out how we can teach people that this is wrong, Maybe it's laws. Maybe we need to implement new laws or maybe we need to revisit old laws and try to figure out what we can do in order to create a society that is civil and, and, and to help to generate change towards love. Or, or maybe it's technology. Maybe technology can, can enable us to come together and see that we're not as different as we think and to help people understand that we are one human race. Or maybe we're just gonna kind of wait, right? Maybe it's just time. Maybe you're just resolved to say, I don't know if there's anything that can happen, so we're just gonna wait. And hopefully in time, people will begin to see the fault of their thinking and, and that bigotry and hatred is in fact disgusting. See, these things may in fact generate some change on a small level over time, right? Maybe you wait and it gets better, Maybe technology can improve and help in some ways, or maybe we do, in fact, need education reform and, and different laws or old laws revisited, but the reality is this. None of those things or any other thing that you're going to bring into the equation outside of what I'm about to say is going to generate any great change. It is not going to transform. It is not going to awaken. It is going to be the same cycle of bigotry and hatred unless the gospel comes into play in our country, in our city, in, in, our, in people's lives, in our conversations. We, we talk about this a lot. We talk about the reality that the gospel is the most powerful thing to believe because it not only transforms your mind, but it transforms your heart. 
When you understand that you are loved and forgiven by God and you claim Christ as your identity and you immerse yourself in God's love, it changes everything about who you are, changes how you think, changes how you view people, changes how you live. And so the only thing, in fact, that's actually going to change what we're facing and bring transformation and awaken people is the gospel, and when we say gospel, we mean good news. And when we, mean, when we talk about good news, we don't mean the only things that are written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? That, that's where we see the pinnacle of the gospel. We see the life and the ministry and the teachings of Jesus. We see how he lived a perfect life for us and he died on the cross for our sins and he was buried and he rose on the third day. But the gospel is seen in every single book of the Bible, the good news of who God is and how he loves us and what his plan is to rescue fallen people and his wisdom is written all over scripture and especially written tonight in the book of Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 3. Here's what it says. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. Shalom. So Solomon is saying here that if you embrace the teachings found in this book, if you hold fast to them, it is going to be like a tree of life for you. You're going to see growth, and you're going to see fruit generated, and you're going to see vibrancy and energy, and it's going to draw people. It's going to be powerful if you embrace the truths that are written here. But what we're going to see is that what Solomon talks about and what we see written in Proverbs is not only contained in Proverbs, but it actually echoes all over Scripture. And most notably, we'll see that it is in the life of Jesus as he speaks these same truths. So Solomon is saying, if you hold fast to these words that I'm about to speak to you, and if you hold to these things as truth, and you allow them to penetrate your mind and change your heart so that you live and think and look at people differently, it's going to bring shalom. Shalom, a lot of us, if you've heard this word before, you automatically think of peace. It does, in fact, mean peace, but it means a lot more than that. Shalom means harmony and completeness and oneness and wholeness. It involves much more than our understanding of peace. It brings all of these different things together. And when I thought about that, as I'm reading this and processing this this week, and I'm saying, okay, if we hold fast to the truth that we find in God's word, if we embrace it, it's like a tree of life, and it brings shalom, it brings harmony and wholeness and oneness and completeness. And I'm like, that sounds really appealing right now. That sounds wonderful. But how do you embrace it? How do you find shalom? How do you hold fast to that, to find harmony and unity and wholeness? Next verse says, by wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations, understanding he set, by understanding he set the heavens in place. So he's, he's telling you now, how do you hold fast and embrace the truth that you find in Proverbs and find shalom? He goes and he transitions to, well, God has created everything through his wisdom. So what he's saying is, if you look around, if you actually take your eyes from the day that you have tomorrow at work and the relationships that you have that are good or bad and they're the next week or the next month and you actually just look up for a moment and you observe how God has uniquely wired and created everything together by his wisdom, you're going to see the truth of who God is, which is going to bring shalom 
into your life. You're going to notice that this creation is intelligently designed, that it is strategic, that there is purpose here, and it is going to blow you away. And it's not difficult to behold. The next verse says, By his knowledge, the deeps were divided, and the clouds let drop the dew. What he's saying here is that when you begin to observe how God has created everything by his wisdom, it's not hard to find his wisdom. It's not hard to find what you're to cling on to and what you're to hold fast to and what you're to embrace. It's like when you walk outside and the night before everything was dry and then you walk outside, it's all wet, right? The, the dew has come down. No one knows how that happens. Maybe scientists, I don't know. But it, everything's wet and it's not hard to notice that dew is everywhere. In the same way, if you begin to observe God's, creation, you're going to see his wisdom. You're going to see the very things that you're to cling to and believe and hold fast to. It is obvious. One of the ways that we see that is in the complexity of his design. Charles Darwin talks about this. Here's what he says. To suppose that the eye, with all of its inimitable contrivances, for adjusting the focus of different distances, for emitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, okay, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest sense. What he's saying is, when, when I, with all these big words in my mind, look at the eye and how it works and how it adjusts to different light coming in and all of its complexities, the idea that this just happened by natural selection seems absolutely absurd. I mean, how could that have happened? But see, we don't only see God's wisdom when we notice the complexity and the intelligence in God's design, but most notably when we look at God's masterpiece, which are his people, it's just humanity, right? God said that we are created in his image. We are the crown jewel of everything that God has created. And when we look at his people, we see his wisdom. And what do you see when you look at human beings? You see men and women who are white and black and brown and from many cultures and many colors and many tongues and many different personalities we are different, we are diverse, and this is the crown jewel of God's design. And we see his wisdom here. We begin to understand the things that we're to believe and hold fast to. Tim Keller says this, he says, the world is not like a lava cone, the product of a powerful random eruptions, but it's rather like a fabric, woven cloth consisting of innumerable threads interlaced with one another, the threads must be rightly and intimately related to one another in, a, in literally a million ways. Each thread must go over and under and around and through the others at thousands of points, and only then do you get a fabric that is beautiful and strong, that covers and fits and holds and shelters and delights. That's the meaning of the word shalom. So when you observe God's creation, most notably his masterpiece, which are his people, and you notice that we are different. We are diverse. We come in all shapes and sizes and colors and personalities and languages. 
And when you see that and you seek and desire to have shalom be a part of your life and your experience and you want to see that be part of what you notice in your city and what you experience in your city and your culture and your country and your world, God's design is that diversity is to come together united, woven together like a fabric. This is the meaning of the word shalom, of unity, of wholeness, of oneness, of harmony, and so what does that teach you? It begins to teach you that to reject diversity or to elevate your race or any race over another race or to elevate your culture or another culture over, 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 over another culture is simply to reject Christian wisdom in the gospel. Because God has written it. All you have to do is look around and notice that we are different. We look different. We think different. We're from different environments and cultures. And that God's desire is shalom, which is harmony and unity and oneness and wholeness. And we are to come together. We are not better because we look or think or act a certain way. We are all uniquely and perfectly designed in God's image. But here's the reality. We are broken now. So we see that, we understand God's wisdom. This is his intended design for all of these diverse people to come together in unity, but we look around and we say, that is not happening. Because this, though this was intended, because of our sin and our lack of perfection, we are separated. We are divided. And there is injustice. And there is bigotry. And there is racism. And there is all of these things that don't look anything like God's intended design, do not look anything like what we see when we actually begin to observe God's creation to understand his wisdom, the very thing we should hold on to and embrace. And so when we do that, when we notice that, that the system is broken and we are flawed and it's not how God intended, what do we do? I mean, how do we actually live in the city? What is the command for a Christian in a broken system? It's pretty simple. You stand for justice. You stand to reveal God's intended design. When you see that God's design is not being upheld and people are not thinking according to God's wisdom, which is evident even when you look at his creation, you stand up against that. You speak out against that. And here are some of the ways it talks about here in Proverbs. It says, do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Now, the good being spoken of here is not necessarily a physical good. It can be a physical good, like giving physical assistance, monetary assistance, a physical provision. But what Solomon is speaking about, actually, is that it's an ethical good. So what he's saying is that when you are presented with an opportunity to give an ethical good, which could involve the giving of something physical, you're to do so. And it says here something interesting, to those who deserve it. But it's actually not claiming here that they had to have done something to earn the ethical good you're to, to give them. In fact, what it's saying here is that if someone has a moral claim on your assistance because what they're facing and what is happening is not according to God's design, it is an injustice. It is a product of a broken system and flawed people and sin. Then if you as a person who understands and holds fast to and embraces God's wisdom, and you have the opportunity to provide good in that situation, and as we see in the rest of Scripture, even when they're your enemies, 
you do so. You act. You stand for justice when you have the opportunity. You step in the gap when you have the opportunity. You speak truth when you have the opportunity. You provide assistance and help to somebody in need when you have the opportunity that this is, in fact, wisdom. And it says here, it lets you know when you're supposed to give, when you're supposed to give this good to somebody who needs assistance. It says when you have the power to act. When you are capable of acting, when you're capable of bringing help or speaking up or standing up, you are to do so. And this all revolves around being a person of justice, being someone that is observing what is happening around you and you are comparing it to what you know is God's intended design. And so you're looking at everything and you're saying, is what I see and what I experience the way that God intended it to be? Because if it's not, I am called as a Christian who follows after and holds fast to God's wisdom to step in and help to reveal the way it was intended to be before we broke the system with sin. This is what we have been called to do. And so the wise person asks these type of questions, like, is the treatment of this individual right? Is this how God has designed this to be? Is this system standing for equality and justice? Is this position or thought in line with God's truth and his wisdom? Is providing assistance to this person going to reveal God's intended design of shalom and unity and harmony and oneness and wholeness? Is the struggle that this person is feeling and the oppression that they're feeling a product of a broken system? And can I step in with my voice or with my actions to help reveal to them that this is not, in fact, how it is meant to be? But see, the wise person doesn't only step in the gap and stand up and speak out when there's these face-to-face situations with opportunities that are very clear before them. They're also asking questions about those things that are unseen and overlooked. Questions like, you know, what is missing in my city that is not according to God's design? If I, if I look at my city and I observe it and I think about it and I compare it to how God intended for his city to come together and flourish in harmony and unity and wholeness and oneness, what is missing? And what is my role in bringing good to that situation? Who is being overlooked in my city, in my neighborhood, in my culture? See, the wise person is engaging visible and invisible injustices. They're noticing not only visible injustice, but also invisible injustice. And when they have the power to act, they do so. Look what it says next. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow, when you, have, when you now have it with you. See, when God presents you an opportunity where you can bring good, you can reveal his design, you can reveal his wisdom, you can stand for justice, don't say to the person or to the opportunity or even to yourself, well, I'll just do it later when you can fully do it now. Publius Sirius, a Latin writer in 50 BC, said this. I love this. He gives twice who gives quickly. He gives twice who gives quickly. So you don't, as, as Christians, we are not called to wait 
when we have an opportunity to stand for justice. We're not called to wait when you have the opportunity to provide help and assistance. You're not called to wait when you have the ability to speak up or to reveal God's design in a system that is broken. You're to stand up and you're to act. And here's why. Because the wise person cares. Look at Proverbs 29. It says, the righteous care about the justice for the poor, about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no concern. So why do they care? Why do the righteous or the wise care about justice for the poor or, or those that are struggling or suffering or facing an injustice or feeling oppressed? Why do they even care? It's because they are comparing what they're seeing to what they know God's intended design is, and they're clinging to God's truth and his wisdom, and they're saying, this isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. And I know it breaks God's heart, and I know that it should break mine as well. To put it very simply, the wise and the righteous person, when they observe things that are broken and not according to God's design, it generates in them a desire to love. Jesus says this in in Mark 12, one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible that is not only ringing in the minds of the wise, but is actually implemented in their actions as Proverbs is talking about here. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Here's the greatest commandment. Love God with everything you have. Your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, everything. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, Jesus is it's only asked for one commandment, but he gives two. They want to know the greatest commandment, and he gives the two greatest commandments. He says, listen, the first commandment, the greatest commandment is this. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Everything that you have, you are made and designed to love God and to be in relationship with him and worship him. But I cannot tell you the first commandment without also telling you the second greatest commandment because if you actually follow the first commandment, which is to love God, the second commandment is going to be true of you. You're going to love your neighbor as yourself. See, what Jesus is saying is if you have vertical love for God, you are going to have horizontal love. It happens You don't manufacture it. If you actually truly love God and you're seeking to understand who he is and you're clinging to his wisdom, you're going to love others. See, a love for God awakens a love for your neighbor. And your neighbor is anyone that God has put you in contact with physically, and in our case now, virtually. Anyone that God has put you in contact with is your neighbor. And if we love God, then we love God. Our neighbor, but the wicked have no concern. They don't care about those overlooked and facing injustice and struggling and suffering. They just don't care. And oftentimes what the wicked will do is they'll actually justify their lack of compassion or their lack of mercy or their lack of boldness to stand up in the face of justice because they'll think things or maybe they'll say things like, listen, if the poor just worked harder, they wouldn't be poor. Or, listen, I know you're suffering, but suffering is a part of life. Like, get through it. Or those, maybe they think that those that are claiming injustice are overblowing it. Like, come on, get over it. 
everyone faces some type of injustice. So the wicked have no concern. They don't care because they don't love. This is why they don't care. Either they don't love God or they have an immature love of God. Because if you love God and you have vertical love, you have horizontal love. If you love God, it awakens in you a love for your neighbor. And so if you don't love your neighbor, if you're overlooking them, if you treat the injustice that others feel like it's insignificant, or if you justify your lack of compassion and mercy and you claim to love God, you might want to ask yourself, is my love of God immature? Is it missing something? Because very clearly, in Proverbs, as well as Jesus, when you love God and you hold and embrace his truth, it shows up in the way that you love your neighbor. This is how the wise think. And then Proverbs 3, 29, 30 says it like this. This is what it looks like to love. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully with you. Do not accuse a man for no reason when he's done you no harm. You see, the wise will not plot harm against their neighbor when they live trustfully alongside of them. They will not accuse a man for no reason. Yet the unwise person who doesn't care about justice will do, in fact, those things. They will accuse someone even when they have no reason to. They will plot harm against somebody even when they're unsuspecting and they're living trustfully alongside of them. See, what happens is the wicked or the unwise in this situation that either have no love for God or an immature love for God, they have a, a, a definition of justice that we don't see here. Here's their de definition of justice. Justice is you get what you deserve. You get what you earn. While the wise understand that justice is more profound than that. Justice is, in fact, making wrong things right. There's a difference. The unwise and the wicked say, justice is you get what you deserve. And the righteous and the wise who love God, say, they understand that justice is, in fact, making wrong things right. Because justice is looking at things that are not intended and not intended by God's design and saying, that's wrong. And justice is to make those things right. Jesus actually tells us that definition of justice in the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when he says, behold, I am making what? We're going to try it again. Behold, I am making all things new. He says, listen, I'm coming back, and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring justice. But when I come back, I'm not giving everyone what they deserve. Thank God that he does not give us what we deserve. He's making all things new. He's taking things that are wrong and he's going to make them right. And the wise understand that this is what justice means. And sometimes actually the unwise and, or the wicked will stumble upon this understanding of justice, that justice is making wrong things right. Maybe their political affiliation leads them to think that. Maybe their culture that raised them makes them to think that this is wrong, we need to make it right. Maybe it's just common sense. This is wrong and it needs to be made right. But when the root concern and the desire for you to stand up for justice and to speak out for justice, the making of wrong things right, is not a love for God, here's what happens. Injustice. When, when you're seeking to achieve justice, but love for God is not the primary motivation 
You will, in fact, oftentimes plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully beside you because you're trying to achieve justice, but you're going to enact injustice on somebody else in order to achieve justice for this person or this group. Or you're going to tell someone and, and, and tell someone that they have done something wrong, that they have, in fact, not done wrong, or they do not think and they do not feel because you're trying to achieve justice for this person or for this group, and so you're going to accuse this person or this group. In order to achieve justice, oftentimes, if love for God is not the motivation that awakens a love for your neighbor, you will enact an injustice to achieve justice. Justice, and oftentimes what happens is it eventually resorts to violence. Proverbs tells us to avoid that. Proverbs 3, 31 through 32, it says, Do not envy a violent man or choose any of his ways, for the Lord detests a perverse man, but he takes the upright into his confidence. You see, the violent person is the unwise person. They may have a cause that is justified, an anger that is righteous, but violence is part of the broken system. This is not God's intention. The intention is shalom, right? Harmony and unity and oneness and wholeness. And so to seek to achieve justice by enacting injustice and using the very things of the broken system to achieve that is not wisdom. That's faulty thinking. The wise understand that in order for justice to come, in order for change and transformation and an awakening of people's mindset to happen, it's going to come through love. And the greatest movements are characterized by this, right? Martin Luther King and his leadership and his vision was characterized by love. Rosa Parks, during the civil rights movement, her actions and her example were characterized by love. She was bold, but she did not resort to violence. Gandhi's nonviolent and peaceful resistance to Great Britain was characterized by peace. William Wilberforce's persistent and loving action to abolish slavery in Great Britain was not done through aggression or through violence, but through love. And then the greatest movement in the history of the world, Christianity, was spread not through the sword, not through ultimatums, and not through violence but through love, through seeking to bring shalom. See, love motivates the wise person to stand for justice, and whenever the opportunity presents itself to reveal in conversation or in action what God's intended design is. There's a really peculiar verse here that we listed. It says that he who is kind to the poor, in Proverbs 19, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. He's saying, if you are kind and loving towards the poor, to the overlooked and the outcast and those suffering or facing injustice, it's as if you're, you're giving or you're lending that to God. That if you're kind or you're loving, which requires an action, it's not just a, a mindset, it's going to require sacrifice of you. It's going to require bringing that ethical good, whatever it may be in the situation where you've been called to act. You're going to have to sacrifice something. 
maybe your time, your talent, maybe treasure, maybe you have to have a courageous voice, whatever the case may be, when you bring kindness and love to those that are suffering or the poor, it's as if you're giving it to God because God is, in fact, the author of justice. He's the one that's promised to make all things new, and he is the defender of those that are facing the consequences of a broken system. Proverbs 14.31 tells us this. It says, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. To oppress the poor, the overlooked, or the outcast, or to have no concern for those feeling that they're facing an injustice, and in fact facing an injustice, is to have contempt for God. Is to have either no love for God or an immature love for God, because this is God's heart to make broken things and wrong things right. So you have to ask yourself questions when you read the news and when you see what's happening and when you face conversations and you hear different stories. You say, is, is that breaking my heart? Because I know it's breaking God's. Because this is not how it's been intended. This is not God's design. And, and this echoes, not just in Proverbs, but it echoes all across Scripture and it shows up in the life of Jesus. And here's what he says. In Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoner and recover and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, if you claim the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, you are not getting what you deserve. Praise God, you're not. You are not getting what you deserve. Instead, you are being made new. You who are broken, like me, because of our sin and our rebellion and our ignorance and our foolishness, by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, we're being made new. We're being made right. We're being made whole. We're being made in harmony with God. Shalom is coming into our life and our relationship with God. And in order to accomplish and, and in order to satisfy justice, Jesus, who loves you, he was given the opportunity to act, and he did. He didn't wait. He didn't say, I'll come, you know, a couple of thousand years later, maybe. See if you earn it. See if you deserve it. Jesus acted, and he sacrificed, and he gave whatever was necessary for those that are facing the injustice of a broken system, though we do deserve it because of our sin, to make it right, Jesus gave his life for you and for me, and he did it because he loves you. And so here's what I want us all to walk away with. If you claim Jesus as your savior, you are claiming his identity, which means you are claiming the very things that he is about. And what does he say that he's about? bringing good news, the gospel, God's wisdom and his truth and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his compassion to who the poor, freedom to the prisoners and those in bondage, recovery of sight for those that are blind and those that can't see truth and are believing all these things that are disgusting and full of hate and Jesus is seeking to set the oppressed free. See, Jesus has come to break our chains, church, 
And if we believe that, and if we understand God's love, how great that is, that he doesn't give us what we deserve, but he makes us new, then we're claiming that identity, and we are saying, I understand what it means to hold fast, God, to your wisdom. It means that I'm to be like you. I'm to love the people that you have put around me to bring shalom, to bring harmony and wholeness and unity by revealing your intended design, and I will give what I have to give to stand for justice, to speak up, to care for those who are in need. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the fact that you did not give us what we deserve, but you gave us mercy and compassion. God, we are here tonight humbly before you because you have done something in our lives or we're seeking to know who you are as we're searching. Lord, many of us are hurting, are struggling, are confused, are angry, are frustrated at the conditions and the situation that we find our country and our city and our culture and our world and we see the broken system, we see the effects of sin and sometimes we feel like we don't know what to do and God, we pray that you would give us a heart to worship you and to praise you no matter what, and that love and that worship and that praise of you would awaken in us a love for our neighbors, that we would be like you, Jesus, seeking to set the oppressed free, standing up for justice, seeking to bring sight to those that are blind and are not seeing clearly. Would you give us that vision and that strength and that wisdom? It's the same that we pray. Amen.